Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Preemption is the right of any nation in order to preserve its national security. However, preemptive war is a tactic, not a strategy. When used as a strategy, preemption dilutes diplomacy, creates an atmosphere of distrust, and promotes regional instability. Alan Tauscher, former US Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 27.2. The Swedish Deluges, Part 2 Last time we examined what brought Sweden to its position in 1655. This involved assessing the reign of Queen Christina and explaining why she abdicated in favour of her cousin Charles Gustav. With Charles Gustav's accession secure, we then turned to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Sweden's enemy of the past and present, and introduced you to Bogdan's Cossack Revolt, a struggle which the Poles proved unable to quash, and which would eventually lead in late 1653 to an opportunistic Russia heeding the calls for aid from the Ukrainian Cossacks. We ended the episode with the Russian declaration of war on Poland. We will now follow on from that declaration and examine why Poland was so susceptible to its immense loss in prestige over the coming years. I will now take you to the year roughly 1653. The Cossack Revolt was a symptom of a wider series of fundamental problems within the Polish state. Having diluted the power of its monarchs for years and increased as a result the powers of its local magnates in each of the principalities, the Commonwealth by the mid-17th century resembled a patchwork of varying loyalties and different national groups who in turn possessed vastly different interpretations of what their position in the Commonwealth was. 
Poland's centre and its Lithuanian brother was the most solid portion of the state as a whole, but this taken together resembled only about 60% of the Commonwealth's land surface. Its problems resemble those of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the early 20th century, except without their own national issues that were in this case swapped for the gross mismanagement and corruption at many local levels, as well as the ambitious nobles who inhabited senior positions across the Commonwealth. These inherent problems were of course only exacerbated by the woeful demands the Polish crown had placed upon its peoples up to 1648 thanks to its wars with Sweden and Russia, that had stripped the once triumphant state of much of its sheen. The Cossack problem that Bogdan took charge of could be seen as similar to the Serbian problem facing the Habsburgs before World War I, but again, the Cossacks in this case may have been happy to remain under Polish jurisdiction, as later treaties devised by their officials attest to. The problem was the suffocating influence of Polish magnates and their insistence on centralising the entire Ukrainian state. It should be emphasised that the revolt of the Cossacks was a catastrophic event in Polish history, and for the Ukraine it resembles the beginning of its transformation from a Polish to a Russian sphere of influence. In their search for allies, the Cossacks drew the Crimean Tartars, located in modern-day Russian-occupied Crimea, yes I did just say that, even more intensely into the fray. Because the Tartars had no interest in seeing either the Cossacks or the Poles establish themselves firmly and decisively, it took a number of years before a real Tartar presence was felt in the Cossack camp. But after a while, the presence of so many foreign light cavalry in the Cossack armies began to tell. The last great victory that the Poles scored against this combined Tartar Cossack army was achieved in the Battle of Berestechko over the 28th to the 30th of June 1651. On that date, the two huge armies, estimates place the two armies at sizes varying from 80 to 200,000 on either side, with nobody completely clear, clashed and the Cossacks fled the field. Over the following months, John Casimir of Poland, the brother of the late king Vladislav IV, was unable to make good his victory, blaming the unusually heavy rains for his lack of pursuit. A less significant skirmish at Biletserkva in modern-day Ukraine on the 25th of September 1651 led thereafter to a promising treaty named after the same battle on the 28th of September. Located 50 miles south of Kiev, the treaty between the Cossacks and Poles suggested an end to the Polish troubles at last, and the terms did seem to favour Polish interests. Terms of the treaty read thus, the Greek religion, to which the Zaporizhian host adheres, is to be considered to have its ancient liberties according to the old laws. The noblemen of the Roman and Greek faith, who were in the Zaporizhian host, are to be amnestied. And the Jews, who lived in royal and noble estates, and held leases there, are to do so now also. The horde is immediately to be sent home. The present hetman will not have any relations or agreements with it or with foreign rulers, but will remain totally and inviolably in total subordination to the king and the commonwealth, faithfully and benevolently serving the commonwealth in everything. Envoys from the hetman and the Zaporizhian host are to be sent to the very next diet, with humble thanks for the mercy and favour of the king and the entire commonwealth. Bogdan's forces, depleted and exhausted from years of conflict, not to mention sick of being passed like a hot potato from foreign ruler to foreign ruler in the hopes of acquiring some kind of legitimacy, yearned to return to their families and way of life. 
Bogdan couldn't remain immune to his people's suffering, and he had to acknowledge that his losses had been great. His ill-disciplined and scattered forces would have been mincemeat had they faced any other armies than the fractured Commonwealth. He surely recognised that his luck would not last forever. Bogdan's motives for war in the first place, the desire to air his people's grievances, and increase their rights, did seem within reach initially, but most historians suggest that his cause was practically lost by late 1651, and that he hoped by this stage to gain by attrition what his disorganised forces couldn't achieve on the battlefield. With the Treaty of Bielet-Zerkva, Poland should have had its victory, it should have been spared what history was to deal it next, it may even been able to avoid disappearing off the map. Indeed, when historians attempt to trace the reasons for why Poland did disappear in the late 18th century Polish partitions, as it was carved up among Russia, Prussia and Austria, they often point to its internal problems in its same or parliament. Some of these devices we've encountered before, in the When Diplomacy Fails episode 9, called The War of the Polish Succession. In that era, the late 1630s, Polish sovereignty was entering its twilight years. Then, however, just as this period we're examining now, the political apparatus of Poland would be paralysed by the very men who were supposed to be upholding its interests. It turns out that the Treaty of Bilasirkva did not pass because it took merely one dissenting Polish voice to block it. Under Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth law, this so-called liberum veto would be enough to ruin many attempts at reorganisation and reform that the Polish state so badly needed. Implemented in 1651 by terminally short-sighted nobility, just in time to jeopardise what had just been achieved by Polish forces against their Cossack enemies, the Liberum Veto was to have disastrous long-term consequences for Polish sovereignty as well. Here though, it is significant because it prevented the peace treaty from ever being ratified with the Cossacks. Because it was never ratified, it was never official, despite Bogdan's attempts to uphold its clauses. When campaigning began the following year against the Cossacks, the result for Poland would be the worst military disaster of its recent history, and a hideous example of all that was wrong with the Polish status quo. The winter of 1651-2 presented a number of problems to the Poles, as their state was essentially divided over whether peace should ensue with the Cossacks or whether the war should continue. John Casimir of Poland, brother of the late Vladislav IV, who had died in 1648, favoured peace, mainly because the terms that Bogdan seemed willing to adhere to were so favourable, and could ensure a secure Cossack buffer zone in between the Tartars and the rising power of Russia. Yet some, like the commander of Polish forces, Nikolai Pataki, favoured continued conflict for his own reasons. Pataki, nicknamed Bearpaw, seemed to have a deep-seated hatred for all things Cossack and peasant in life, and his antagonism is cited by some as egging Bogdan on to launch his revolt in the first place. Regardless, Bearpaw was a magnate, a member of a Polish noble family, and a wealthy member of Polish society. Others like him, who shared views like him, were able to hold similar influence because of the Liberum veto. All it took was a single vote against legislation, such as the peace with the Cossacks, and the required vote of unanimity was ruined and the peace postponed. Bearpaw was not present in the same when it voted, since he was out campaigning with his troops, but he was by no means the only Polish influential that desired a continuation of the war. Some wished to see it continue simply because they wished to see the Cossacks further crushed, and no longer present any kind of threat to Polish security in the future. 
However, Bearpaw would die in late November 1651, and thus the Polish armed forces languished under replacement generals for a time, exactly when Bogdan was planning to strike back. Mikhailo Hrushevsky, in his multi-volume History of Ukraine, published in 1909, describes the decisions and conclusions reached by Bogdan Khmelnytsky, leader of the Cossacks. Quote, Bogdan mentioned as a casus belli the fact that the Poles had violated the peace agreement by annihilating the Cossack towns and that they were now preparing to make war on the Cossacks. Bogdan scheduled a great council during Easter week, which included Cossack officers and Tartar delegates, and determined that since the Poles did not ratify the peace treaty of Bilatserkva, Bogdan was released from his oath, and that the acts of violence and vengeance perpetrated by the landlords and officials demonstrated the total impossibility of any coexistence with the Polish elements. With the peace possibilities in ruins and the Cossacks struggling to muster, Alexis of Russia announced his decision in early 1652 to open his borders to the Ukrainian Cossacks, many of whom had fled into Russian lands over the previous months. Those that remained in the Ukraine now faced the Polish-Lithuanian army in the spring of 1652. The resulting Battle of Bati on the 1st of June 1652 was such a disaster for the Poles because they attacked what they assumed to be a rear contingent of the Cossacks, but which was actually the Cossack portion of the wider Cossack Tartar army that the Poles had been tasked with destroying before the two sides had managed to link up. In the ensuing carnage that followed, the Poles were surrounded on all sides, with many leading nobles, expecting a crushing victory of the kind gained the summer before, falling in battle or taken prisoner. Its effects were numerous, not least because Bogdan, when receiving word that the Sultan of the Crimean Tartars, his ally in the war against the Poles, had taken over 8,000 Polish prisoners, offered to pay for their release, into his captivity. Once in his loving care, the Poles could expect no mercy. Indeed, they were beheaded, disemboweled and massacred with very few survivors, in an act touted by the Cossack leadership as revenge for the previous stunning Polish victory the summer before. It was behaviour that shocked even the Crimean Tartars themselves, and the process itself took over 48 hours as men were presented, with hands tied behind their backs, to the numerous butchers walking up and down the line. It sounds like the kind of massacre and controversy that would rally a nation against its foe, but it did not. The Commonwealth was almost too divided to even notice, but history has since termed it the Sarmatian Katyn, after the hideous act of the same nature conducted by the Soviets against Polish officers in early 1940. The loss at Bati also fundamentally weakened the Polish ability to command having lost many militarily capable magnates and upper-class nobles. The following years would see a total breakdown of the Polish ability to resist the invader, as levied soldiers, unused to pitched battle of any kind, would be tested against experienced Swedish conscripts and hardened mercenaries. It seemed to have torn the heart out of the Polish same as well. No longer capable of forming a united foreign policy to tackle the resurgent Cossack threat, it descended into a farce of division, and seemed more willing to panic and procrastinate than actually make foreign policy decisions. If these judgments seem harsh for me, then they are the only way I can explain the rapid, dizzying speed at which the Commonwealth almost ceased to exist when faced with a concerted foreign threat. 
with the clear Polish division over how to fight the Cossack war, and the rumoured emboldening of those Cossacks who had previously turned down the offer to fight for Bogdan, the war between Cossack and Pole was by no means over. It was at this moment that Alexis of Russia, watching gleefully from the sidelines, stepped opportunistically in. Cossack efforts to entice Russian aid began in earnest when it became clearer that the Ottoman Empire was unwilling to aid them in their cause. Bogdan's previous efforts to invite Ottoman attentions against the Poles were based on his own alliances with the Crimean Tartars, who were themselves under the suzerainty of the Ottoman Sultan. Following the Cossack Tartar victory at the Battle of Pati, though, a sort of stalemate ensued as the Cossacks became more determined to resist the previous 1651 peace treaty of Bila Serkva, while the Poles became less inclined to compromise at all. Into this diplomatic impasse, while both sides were militarily exhausted, would creep more and more Russian officials. It began in late August 1652, as a deputation from Moscow finally arrived to meet with Bogdan and hammer out the terms of the alliance. Progress was painfully slow, and in March 1653, the campaigning season began again, with the Poles invading Ukraine and making a push towards Kiev itself, and Transylvania invading Moldavia. These military campaigns used up much of what Poland had left, and the loss of its most military experienced nobles was clearly on display here, as the Cossacks remained unwilling to attack except in a guerrilla-style campaign, and the Poles were unable to wrest a decisive confrontation out of their enemies. By August 1653, negotiations had begun to heat up between the Cossacks and Russians, as portions of Cossack society and their Russian counterparts began to swear fealty to Moscow's Tsar, and invite his protection against the Poles. Such an agreement did not go unnoticed by the Cossacks' former ally, the Crimean Tartars, who actually concluded their own alliance with the needy Poles, levelling the playing field somewhat, as they turned against their former Cossack ally. Frank Sinsin, in his article, The Kamelnitsky Uprising, a characterization of the Ukrainian Revolt, outlines the significance of the closer Cossack-Russian relations. Quote, the Piraeuslav Agreement meant Moscow's entrance into the struggle with the Commonwealth. In the summer of 1654, a Russian army, with Ukrainian reinforcements, invaded Belarus and captured Smolensk. In Podilia, Polish and Crimean armies, an alliance had been arrived at in July in response to the Ukrainian agreement with Muscovy, put great pressure on the Cossack armies. The Russians were slow in coming to the Ukrainians' aid, thereby straining relations. The Poles campaigned actively during the winter of 1654-55, while Tartar attacks reached Bogdan Komelnitsky's capital. End quote. The capture of Smolensk was a huge boon for Russia and a devastating blow for Poland, who had spent years of heroic defence in previous wars preventing its fall. Knackered by years of thankless, costly conflict with the Cossacks, the Polish same remained unwilling to approve the necessary resources to defend the realm. Debates over the necessity of such provisions were also present in Polish foreign policy. King Charles Gustav of Sweden by no means wished to see the collapse of Poland to the feet of Russia, so he attempted to negotiate with Polish delegates and craft a form of Swedish-Polish alliance that could be directed against the stronger Russia. The problem was, bafflingly for historians and likely for his contemporaries, 
King John Casimir of Poland refused to adhere to one of the main requirements for a Swedish alliance, the renunciation of his right to inherit the Swedish throne, which dated back to his father's tenure on the Swedish throne of Sigismund III, who had attempted to bring about a Polish-Swedish union under the Vasa dynasty. The Polish kings still clung tightly to the Vasa name, though to be a Vasa in Sweden and to be a Vasa in Poland meant vastly different things at this time. Since John's father Sigismund had been deposed from Sweden in 1599, he had spent much of his time trying and failing to reacquire his lost inheritance. But the two kingdoms were irreconcilable on religious and cultural grounds, and by the end of his reign in 1632, Sigismund's son and heir Vladislav was more likely to become Holy Roman Emperor than regain his Swedish inheritance, though such realities did not prevent the two states from eyeballing one another menacingly during their 20-year truce from 1635 to 55. Poland had demanded a heavy price for peace in 1635, when Sweden's regency government was at its most hard-pressed, and France had only barely entered the Thirty Years' War, as part of the slipping anti-Habsburg alliance. In desperation did Axel Oxenstierna sign away the Prussian port tolls, essentially the right to collect whatever monies Sweden's Pomeranian ports took in for the sake of guaranteed peace with Poland for 20 years. That was 1635 though, and much had changed in 20 years. Now it was Poland who desperately needed to ensure against attack from another direction. As I mentioned though, despite the fact that an opportunistic war against the Poles would likely have borne witness to their collapse, Charles Gustav was in favour of, for the sake of the Baltic and Central European balance of power, siding with Poland against the Russians. Yet John Casimir continued to rebuff Swedish demands for a renunciation of his claims on the Swedish throne. Paul Douglas Lockhart, in his book Sweden in the 17th Century, examines the situation facing the Swedes at this juncture. Quote, From the perspective of Charles Gustav and his council, the war represented not an opportunity, but a crisis. Poland had been Sweden's greatest enemy in the east, but Russian territorial gains were more threatening in the eastern territories of the Swedish Empire. The volatility of the situation in Poland-Lithuania prompted Charles Gustav and his council to make preparations for war at the end of 1654, hiring foreign mercenaries and reintroducing wartime levels of conscription. Since neutrality did not appear to be a viable diplomatic option, Sweden would have to go to war. But against whom? Charles Gustav's first inclination was to align himself with Poland, despite the pitiful performance of Polish armies so far. John Casimir, however, would not or could not accept the price Charles Gustav demanded for his friendship, a price which included renunciation of Polish claims on the Swedish throne. Charles Gustav thus saw little choice in the situation. He decided to cast his lot in with Russia, as an indirect means of precluding a Russian threat to Swedish interests in the Eastern Baltic. End quote. Charles Gustav couldn't simply allow the collapse of Poland to take place without doing anything. If he remained neutral, Russia could impose itself on Poland and establish an impressive Eastern bloc of states that would have had the ruin of the Swedish Baltic hegemony as their primary goal. He would certainly have preferred to have sided with Poland as a means of combating the threat Russia posed to its hegemony directly. In fact, he most likely would have preferred to have remained at peace altogether, considering the dire state of the Swedish economy. 
Yet the war also suggested a great deal of opportunities that Sweden could grab. For one, Royal Prussia, the portion of Pomerania that snaked along the Baltic Sea and still belonged to Poland, could be seized alongside its lucrative port Danzig. With such an acquisition, Sweden could link its empire together along the Baltic Sea and create a complete encirclement of the region securely under its control. Such a victory would surely entail the collapse of Poland in general, especially if further campaigning was to be had, not to mention the return of the Prussian tolls and the influx of much-needed cash into the Swedish coffers. Then, perhaps, Sweden could make peace and establish itself as the undisputed, unthreatened power, not just in the Baltic, but also Eastern Europe. From this status, its economic problems could melt away and the badly needed reforms would begin then in earnest. Should it still pose a threat, Sweden could deal with its Russian problem in force then. This was the logic debated by Charles Gustav and his advisers when considering option B, attack Poland, in late 1654. Whatever they decided, time was of the essence. If they failed to act soon, Poland could be overrun by its enemies in the east and by the Cossacks in the south before they even had time to act. And who could guarantee that the Ottoman Empire would not seize the opportunity themselves to get involved? Charles Gustav thus prepared to launch a two-pronged invasion of Poland in the summer of 1655, with the hope of gaining these limited goals and overseeing the resulting favourable peace treaty that he hoped would redefine Polish-Swedish relations and ruin once and for all his rival's position. As grand as his aims were, and as confident as he was in the performance of his own troops, Charles Gustav could never in his wildest dreams imagined that he, the nephew of Gustavus Adolphus the Great, would arguably surpass his uncle in the grandness and significance of his achievement, as he oversaw the period of Polish history known as the Deluge, and in the process permanently transformed the status quo of the 17th century. This episode has been broken up into five parts for easier listening. You've reached the end of this part, but not the end of the war, so please check your downloads and resume listening to When Diplomacy Fails' coverage of the Swedish deluges. This episode is focused almost exclusively on Poland's problems before the war broke out with Sweden, as well as investigating further the Russian decision to intervene. Next time, we'll see what happens when Sweden commits one of the most breathtaking invasions of the 17th century, and in the process... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. That's almost wipes its rival off the map. All the while, of course, the wider European Conservative powers will be looking on, and attempting to decide whether the nephew of Gustavus Adolphus the Great had, this time, gone too far. Please join us in part three to find out what happens next. Thanks. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.